Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Jim Stewart. And if you're not familiar with Jim, Jim is a mixing engineer and producer based out of Cleveland, Ohio. And he's worked with a lot of local artists, regional artists, national artists, and a bunch of the songs that he's mixed or engineered or produced on, they've been featured in TV shows, movies, commercials, and they've been gaining a ton of streams online. So I wanted to bring on Jim today because not only is he a fantastic engineer, and we definitely talk about his process behind mixing and some of the cool techniques he does there. But he also has a really interesting story about how he's navigated throughout the industry. And in particular, when it comes to studios shutting down. And as you'll hear in Jim's story, he definitely has been part of some crazy tumultuous times. But Throughout all of that, he has kept a positive attitude about it. And now he even operates his own studio. And he has taken a lot of lessons from his tumultuous times working for these other studios and he's applied that to his own studio and it's allowed him to make a living and, and succeed with this. So, you know, I think that he offers a really interesting perspective when it comes to building a studio, getting clientele. And we talk about all of that stuff, like what goes into building a studio, what goes into finding clients, how to grow your clientele from working with local artists to getting to that next tier. And he just has such an amazing outlook on all of this stuff. So I think you're going to find this episode really interesting. So let's just jump right into it. Jim Stewart, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. For people who might not be familiar with you, can you give us that background on how you got into music and into mixing and producing and all the cool stuff that you're working on these days? Yeah, I mean, um, my earliest musical memory is my dad just playing me records. Um, he's probably the biggest music fan I know, but he's he's never really been a musician. He's dabbled in stuff, but never really just like... Um, you know, never been like a full-time or like a really dedicated musician. Um, so I remember him like showing me the last waltz, uh, like on, he had the vinyl, like the huge vinyl with all the different outtakes and stuff. I remember watching that, um, video and just, there was always like music around the house. Cause he just always listened to stuff. Um, and then when I was about, you know, 12 or 13, I wanted to start playing an instrument. So I got a guitar from a neighbor and started dabbling in that and, um, taught myself to play and kind of, you know, um, went down that road and started discovering my own music. I was in, you know, like this was, uh, late nineties, early two thousands. So there was, you know, this kind of, um, pop rock, pop punk sort of thing. I was getting into that sort of stuff and started a really bad band and, you know, uh, did all that. Um, how I got into the recording side of things was that awful band, um, spent a lot of money to record at a local studio and the guy there just did not, did not care. He'd like, he had other stuff to do. He would, you know, go take a smoke break every few minutes and just, we spent a lot of money and got a very subpar product. And I was like, man, there's gotta be a way to like get into this and like learn how to do it the right way, you know? Um, so I, I, uh, I looked around a little bit. I, um, I didn't really have a direction at that point. I was graduating high school. I went to like a college prep high school, you know, pretty, uh, prestigious place and just like, I'm not going to college. I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I, I looked around for, you know, something that might uh, help me with the recording path and uh, discovered the recording workshop in Southern Ohio, which is like, it's basically a trade school. It's like a two month program. You go and you just like, day one is like, this is a microphone. And, you know, 
if you have no idea, they start from scratch and do the whole thing. I did that program and then uh, just started call like cold calling uh, studios in uh, Cleveland and just saying like, do you need an intern? Can I you know come and sweep the floors and stuff? And uh, you know just kept calling places until they finally like relented and let me come in and, <laughs> and hang out. So that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, sometimes that persistence is uh, is the easiest way to get in the door. Well, not the easiest way, but it's it's the best way to get in the door, right? You just let people know that you're really serious about it, and you know, people people see that hunger. If nothing else, then I'm just bugging them, and like, if I can get them to stop, you know, it, like if <laughs> they can get me to stop bugging them by just letting me come down once or something and see if I want to hang out. And uh, yeah, the first place I ended up staying there for like three or four years, just you know, slowly working up. And I was an intern for uh, the first couple months, and then. Um, the the guy who was like kind of the next in line engineering wise, you know, he was he was planning on leaving anyway. So I, I kind of slowly started taking over his clients and and became like an actual engineer there. Um, unfortunately, the studio was kind of on its way out anyway. It was uh, this was two thousand six, so they were um, one of the bigger remaining studios in town, and they kind of weren't adapting as much as as they kind of should have been at that point. Um, so I was sort of on the tail end of it, and they they closed after a couple years of being there. Um, which I mean, it happened a lot, you know, around then it was a big, you know, two room facility with a massive live room and a fair amount of overhead. And they were still kind of trying to do, you know, full records and like commercial stuff and stuff with budgets that didn't ha- didn't exist anymore. For sure. Yeah. It's definitely like, you know, the days of these big facilities, it's, it's getting harder and harder. Cause like you said, there's these massive overheads and it can definitely be a challenge. Um, so I'm curious to know then, like, how did that transition, like when that place closed, is that when you started up your own thing and, and started working out of your own studio? Uh, that one closed and then I, I found another place, which, um, you know, kind of seemed like it was the next best thing. I mean, it was, it was a much better equipped studio it had, you know, it was, um, better marketing, better all, you know, everything. So it was just like, all right, this place is doing stuff. They can, they have a better client base. And I went there and same kind of thing where like, I was going to freelance out of there. I was going to bring, you know, some of my own gear, my own clients and stuff and, um, work out of there. And then I just did the similar thing where I just kept making myself useful to the main guy. I would just, um, if he needed something done, I'd be like, Hey man, you know, if you need me to, uh, comp or tune a vocal or chop some drums or whatever it might be, I just like, I kept like offering to, just be helpful. And he took me up on it a few times and was like, okay, cool. This is great. Um, so after a few months of, you know, freelancing out of there, he decided to hire me and I started working there. And then inevitably the same thing happened where it just, um, it just wasn't sustainable. Um, for a lot of reasons, it wasn't necessarily just like, you know, the industry shift or anything. It was kind of a lot of, um, personalities, uh, how they wanted to operate and people who got involved kind of just, it just sort of fizzled out. Um, which was a shame because it was a really beautiful place, had incredible gear. I learned a lot of, you know, like proper record making there. And, um, so that place shut down after I was there for almost two years. Um, and then that's when I decided to do my own thing out of, out of necessity more than anything. You know, there was just like, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't like hitch my cart to anything else knowing that like at any point, cause this, this last one, when it shut down, it was like, Hey man, after your session, uh, we're going to shut down the studio. And, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Like, like as I walked my client out, that people walked into the studio and started unracking stuff and like was eBaying it. Like it was, it was a rough situation. So yeah, I had in like, I had just signed a lease on a new apartment. It was like a whole thing. So I was like, all right, well, I gotta, I gotta figure out some stuff, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Wow. 
So that that's really interesting then, because, you know, having been in your situation and having seen two studios get shut down, then deciding to make your own studio, you know, <laughs> that had to have been a scary time because like, obviously you've seen kind of the, the state of the industry, so to speak. So, you know, what was going through your mind when you decided to start the studio? Well, initially it wasn't even going to be a studio. It was going to be like, I just need a place to, um, you know, work with my clients and, and continue to make records. So it was just, I, I, I got the gear that I needed. Um, and was making records in my living room in my apartment. Um, I would go to whatever studio I could find or practice space or any space and cut drums and then just go back to my apartment and do everything else there. And it was like turning off my heat in the winter because the air handler was so loud that I couldn't cut a vocal and everybody's just freezing for, you know, however long it takes to get a vocal done and then turning it back on. It was very, very guerrilla recording. Um, just like literally anywhere I could. Um, and I never, I never wanted to like have a, like my own studio after seeing those things happen. You know, I never wanted the overhead. I never wanted like to be holding the bag if something should happen. I just didn't want that whole thing. Um, so from then on, it was kind of like just keeping my, you know, my monthly as small as possible and like do things, uh, you know, keeping them trim. Um, but during that time I, I was kind of working with, um, I don't want to say most, but like several of the like larger local bands. Um, and then they would all play together. So I'd work with this band and then that band would play with another band and they'd hear the record and cool. And they want to come with me. So I was kind of getting, you know, um, getting known for doing all these, these local projects. And, uh, one of them, um, caught the interest of a local label that wanted to sign the band. And that label also, um, had a partnership with a studio and a producer, a guy named Jim Wirt, who was a big LA guy for a long time. He did, uh, Incubus and Jack's Mannequins on the corporate, a lot of that stuff. And he wound up in Cleveland somehow. Um, so his, his management reached out and was like, Hey, we like, you know, we want to um, get files from that record that you did to have uh, Jim remix it. But also, you know, it sounds really great. So we'd like to talk to you about maybe having a studio in our space. Um, so that was kind of the first time I like was going to have my own thing at a dedicated space, but still not totally be, you know, on the hook should something happen. You know, as the story has been going so far, I, <laughs> my brother-in-law and I got in there and constructed a studio and, um, I was on the ladder, uh, securing the final piece of drywall to actually enclose the room and my phone rang and I took it out and it was the guy who got me in there. And he's like, how's it going? It's like, good, man. I, uh, I just put up the last piece of drywall. It's officially a room. He goes, great. And the building sold. We got to talk. That was another whole thing. Um, he, after having a conversation, he's like, finish the room. We have a year before we're getting out. And because of the lease, the people who are purchasing the building will, you know, they're going to rebuild us elsewhere. Um, Interesting. So that was part of that whole situation was I had a year in this place. And th while the, that I was in there, this, you know, conglomerate of, uh, businesses that took over the building are going to construct, you know, suitable spaces in another location. Wow. Which was a whole another layer of stress and stuff like that. Cause I just, I, I had just built a room. I, you know, I did it with my hands and my brother-in-law, you know, we did it together and it was, it was something that, you know, I really liked it. And then this other thing was kind of happening elsewhere that was like, it was beyond my control. I was just, it was happening, you know, whatever happened, whatever they did was what it was. So it was kind of a, you know, an interesting just year, I guess. Yeah. Wow, man. That's, uh, you know, to, to have gone through that many studio shutdowns, the fact that you're still doing it is impressive. Like, did you ever just think of just giving up with it? 
Yeah, but I I just have no idea what else I would do. I have no idea. You know, I just I like I I couldn't. It's funny. I always talk about like I couldn't sit at a desk. You know, it'd do a DJ, but I do that. It's just not, you know, it's not that kind of thing. I couldn't like sit in a cubicle and do something else. I couldn't like, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely tough to be like a, you know, have a small business and run the thing and, and, you know, kind of have all the stress that comes with that. But it's also like super freeing. I can be super flexible. If I need to take a day off, I can take a day off. If I need to have a doctor's appointment, if, you know, um, my girlfriend has an emergency and I need to run over there and help her out with something. I can just like drop of a hat, you know, change my schedule or, you know, do whatever. There's all kinds of, there, there's way more pros than there is cons for this. But yeah, I mean, I, I was definitely disheartened. And you know, uh, after the second studio shut down, I kind of took a little bit of a break. Um, it wasn't long, but I kind of was like, I just need to not for a little while. And I got like a little part-time job and just, you know, made 13 bucks an hour for a little while. And um, then I was like, all right, I'm, I'm ready to get back in. And then just bought a laptop and an interface and kind of slowly started piecing stuff together again. Yeah. Did you feel like you learned something from watching these other studios close? Like, were there any lessons that when you finally were like, okay, I'm going all in on this, I'm going to have my studio. Did you feel like I'm going to do things differently and this is what I'm going to do differently? Yeah. There was a lot of like, Hey, definitely don't do that. You know? There was a lot of that. Um, second studio, especially um, the guy who who ran that place, was an incredibly talented guy, but is um, you know he's a, he's a dreamer. Uh, he gets he would get very excited about uh, a thing for a very short amount of time. It would be like he's going all in on this thing, and then all of a sudden it fizzles out, and like everybody's like, "Wait, I thought we were doing this," and you know everybody got really geared up for something, and money was spent, and you know it was a lot of a lot of things. Um, so I always just like, I'm going to make it, you know, uh, as small as I can to make sure that I can, like, if I don't, if I don't do a single project in a month, I'm not going to be out on the street. You know, I'm going to try to make it as, as, um, sufficient as possible. I don't want to, I just don't want to like, and I don't want to have a, a bunch of other people like relying on me for something, you know, if, if, should I fail? Does, does that mean that three other people that are, you know, under my umbrella are all of a sudden, you know, going hungry or something like that? I didn't want to have anything like that. So I definitely like learned to keep things tight and try to make sure that I was never, um, never going to be put out, you know, should something bad happen. Um, there was definitely a lot of like, uh, you know, how to, how to treat people stuff that I learned, you know, good and bad, um, how to treat clients and how to kind of, you know, make sure that, um, people are happy and nothing, you know, they're not leaving and cursing your name. And, you know, in a small town, people are hearing about that kind of stuff. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of that. Yeah. Would you say that the, um, like the budgeting was like the biggest lesson that you learned from all these companies or? Yeah, probably. I mean, definitely just like trying not to get in too deep. You know, it's like, obviously I would like this. So this place had an SSL in one room and even the other room, um, you know, a great mic selection, credible outboard gear, instruments everywhere. It was incredible. It was a great place to make a record, but it was deep, you know? And I, from that point on, like the next thing I did was a laptop and a Mo2828, you know, it was just like the opposite of that. Um, and, it, and a lot of, I mean, it was obviously because, you know, I, I couldn't afford to jump into this thing, but also I didn't. I didn't want all the headaches that came along with it. It'd be great to have an SSL, but at this point I would never get one because I've been working so long without that thing. Like my, you know, my, um, 
my style of mixing is not incorporating anything like that. It would take me so much longer to do anything that I do with a console and especially with multiple clients all over the place. I might have to be working on a a mix and then someone goes, hey, uh, sorry, last minute, can you just do a vocal up on that before we get it mastered? Like we're just listening through it one more time. And I have to print that off real quick and like imagine having to recall or like even printing stems, you know, just be like a whole thing. Um, So yeah, I just, the overhead of some of those things was just like, this is unsustainable and totally unrealistic for the kind of thing that I want to do. Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting that you were talking about just like the flexibility of like having these smaller scale, scale down uh, studios, because I, I was just chatting with Andrew Sheps um, and he was talking, a lo- he, he was talking about the same, 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 same idea. You know, he was like, yeah, I went from the, having these giant Neve boards to like nothing. And because it was just like, you know, it was more flexible and it, I could work faster. I can please my clients faster. And, and, you know, like it just went a long way. So, yeah, he's one of those guys that like kind of really like confirmed that it can be done, whether or not I can do it. That's a whole different thing, but like it's, it's possible to do it with the tools that are available. And I like when he was talking about, um, you know, he might, he might not want to finish a mix in a day. He might want to work on it for a few hours and then just be like, ah, I'm not, I'm not there. I'm going to jump into something else and just immediately be able to save close, open another thing and be somewhere else. And then you come back to that thing. It's exactly where you left it. You know, you can just just soldier on a different day with new perspective. It's it's great. Yeah, absolutely. So then fast forward to now, and we're in July 2022. And you just mentioned to me before we started recording that you just finished building a new studio as of March. Yep. And and I could see it here. You got a nice space. It looks like a nice big room. So um so it, it looks like you've gone beyond just having the small laptop and an interface. So how has that evolution happened? Well, um, so the, the, the studio that, um, the one post the, okay. So I built the studio and that one, that building sold the next studio. That was like a big shared space with, um, there was an office, uh, that was a record label and a, a music magazine in the front of the space. And then there was three studios in the back that all kind of shared a central live room. And so it was like sort of a big complex again, but I just had a small part of it. So, um, my, you know, my contribution was still small in the grand scheme of the space. Um, but it just kind of got to a point where it's like, it was almost like having roommate issues, you know, like I put my name on the, the milk in the fridge, but someone keeps drinking it. You know, I go to find a microphone and it's in a different room or someone's not keeping up on the calendar and I come in for a drum session and like, he's got the getting the piano tune because he's got a piano guy coming in and just, there was some, some things there. And sonically the control rooms were just, you know, raw boxes with drywall. Um, and just odd in weird ways. So like they left, you know, quite a bit to be desired sonically. Um, around that time I was just kind of slowly, I wanted to make the move, but also clients were sort of uh, may, helping me make it where I wanted to be mixing more and not doing so much full production, tracking that kind of stuff where I just, I like the pace of, you know, kind of being by myself and sending off mixes and I can spend, a, you know, like we we're just talking about, I can spend a uh, couple hours on one if I'm not, you know, feeling like finalizing it, I can jump to revisions on another thing or something like that. Um, so that was kind of naturally happening with people were asking me to mix more, um, and then COVID happened sort of in the middle of all this where people were doing more self-recording and like just they would like me to finish it up. So that worked out because I was able to take a rig home and work out of an office and just just mix for, you know, however long we were forced to be home. And it sustained, you know, everything I needed to to keep up. Um, so once the, the transition towards mixing um, was like, 
you know, kind of in full swing, I realized like I, I, I would like a more proper sounding control room. Um, I want to, I want to, I want to know that what's coming out of the speakers is correct. I tried the headphones, the headphone thing, and it, it definitely was cool. And I even like, you know, I spent, I got the Odyssey LCD twos. These were, um, Ed Cherney's actually after his, he passed away in his estate, like, you know, I saw a bunch of, a bunch of stuff. So I was like, oh, that's cool. And I tried the headphone thing and I just, I could never like really, really get it right. The center always felt weird to me. And I was always like still wanting to check on something else. So I'm like, I think I'm, I want a proper control room. I'd never had one as long as I had been like officially mixing. So I was like, I, I want to really trust what's coming out of the speakers. So I went down that journey and talked to a bunch of people I know and trust who have done um, that sort of thing and got some names and made some phone calls and ended up uh, consulting with John Brandt, um, who he's actually, he's in Indonesia. He's an American guy, but he lives in Indonesia and um, everything is remote. Um, so about a, uh, yeah, almost a year ago, um, I uh, heard about a space that was coming available that was a former mastering engineer. Uh, it was kind of an odd space. So there's a mastering engineer in one room and then there's another uh, room across the hall that was a... Um, vinyl mastering. So they had a lathe and they would cut lacquer masters. Um, I knew the guys pretty well and they were uh, ready to make a move. So they were le- leaving the space and I just decided to take it over. Um, it's a it's a much smaller space than I was in, but I was able to do the ground up, you know, acoustics build that I had been looking for. And I, yeah, just been in here for a few months and it's, it's awesome, man. It's really cool. That's awesome. So having now built a few studios, like what what are some lessons you've learned about the building process? Oh man. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I, um, I, I've become more, uh, capable of doing things myself because otherwise, you know, waiting for people is tough, especially if, you know, I'm, I, at, at, uh, for about six months I was paying rent in two places. So the longer it took me to build the new studio, the longer I was paying rent at the old studio. Um, so that's tricky. So I, I just kind of had to get to the point where it's like, I have to do a lot of this myself and just, you know, cause I can't, it's, I'm not going to hire a contractor and double my budget. I'm not gonna, you know, there's things that I had to do like that, but I'm like for general stuff, it's like, I'm going to buy a table saw and I'm going to rip as much wood as I can and just kind of sit down and do it. Um, luckily for me, uh, I've never had to really dig into the like crazy isolation of a space because I've always kind of inherited spaces that had that already um nice. yeah so this studio because it, it has always been a music space originally it was um it was a large uh it was a much larger space and there was this was a like, like an ssl control room and then they left so they they did the isolation portion of it so i've got floating floors i've got um you know double layer drywall air gap double layer drywall all around i've got a, you know a ce- like a drop ceiling or um, i'm sorry a drywall ceiling the same thing it's double layers suspended on isolators and everything like it was properly done and i kind of just was able to inherit that it's um, huge <laughs> it's great yeah it's huge because that would have tripled my budget and also like it's a giant pain in the ass to acoustically isolate something and i'm in a larger building i'm in like a, a, a you know um, a three-story uh like arts building there's uh there's photographers there's um painters art galleries they have weddings here like every weekend and i can cut drums in my little iso room while there's a wedding happening you know in down the hall and nobody hears either thing for sure yeah definitely getting that isolation i don't think people realize like how much goes into it and also how how much it shrinks your room down as well to do it properly yeah i mean so this room started out um i mean uh, uh, like uh, three feet wider 
than you're seeing and probably six feet longer. There's four four feet of insulation and you know um, different types of acoustic treatments in the back. Each wall is about a, a foot and a half thick. The front wall you can't see, but angles and it, you know it's about three feet on the sides and two feet in the center. It's it's quite a bit smaller. And I, that was the thing as I was building, I'm like, man, this room just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. <laughs> But it keeps sounding better and better. So I'm going to be moving next month, and uh, I'm going to have to build a new space in, in the basement there. And when I when I got into the house, it was like, okay, the basement's a pretty decent size. And then I was just chatting with a, a studio owner that I, I typically work out of his place to, to cut drums. And uh, I mentioned I was moving, and he's like, oh, man, like if you want, like I'll just give you the blueprints to my place, and like you can feel free to check them out, right? So like, sweet. So I checked them out, and there was this one, like sm- there's like a small ISO booth at the studio. I say small, it's not like super tiny. Like you can you could put drums in there for sure, but um, it's relatively small. And when I looked at the blueprints, I was like, holy shit, that's that's the size of my whole basement, you know. But like, but with all the acoustic treatment in it, it just makes it so much smaller and smaller, and it, it's it's insane. But uh, yeah, and to do it properly, it's just like, yeah, it's it's a lot of work, and like you said, it could triple your budget for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was that was a big a big you know, luck out situation that I was like, great, this is, and that was one of my concerns. I was like, I'm not, I wasn't sure how isolated it was. So I came down, had a guy just sitting here with a kick and a snare just to hear how much was leaking. And I was like, okay, we're, we're good. And then once I put as much insulation and stuff as I did in the walls, in the treatment walls, it's just like, it got sucked up even more. For sure. Yeah. You definitely, especially if you got like weddings and stuff like that going on, you, you can't be interrupting someone's wedding with a drum kit, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely an easy way to get complaints. Yeah, if they bug me, that's fine. I, I signed up for that, but I'm not. They didn't sign up for you know somebody doing blast beats during their vows <laughs> or something. You know, <laughs> could make for an interesting wedding video or something. Yeah, like that. I guess <laughs> maybe some people do. I don't know. But. Yeah, right on. So, so it's interesting. Like you know, the, building these these spaces. Um, you know, and you talked about how one of the previous studios that you worked at they. They tend to go a little extravagant with some of the gear that they purchased. And I know a lot of people have this kind of belief that, you know, if I build it, they will come. And in my experience, it's definitely one of the furthest things from the truth when it comes to a studio, right? And I think it tends to be people that just have that gear lust and want all this equipment just to feel like, yeah, this is like what I've always dreamed of. But do your clients really care? That's really what matters, right? So so what are some of the steps that you've taken now that you have your own space to generate some income for your studio and to be able to actually recoup these expenses of building a studio? Because obviously it is pretty expensive to do that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, luckily, I, you know, this is because it's my third, fourth, whatever space that I've, I've been working out of, I have uh, a fair amount of word of mouth um, clients and repeat business in town. Um, but it's been growing in the past couple of years to be you know, regional, national, international, um, which has been really awesome. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, ultimately where I think most people want to grow their careers is to be working with bands that are, are doing stuff on a, on a larger scale. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of what I do is, you know, if I, if I do a record for a band, I'll, I'll ask them like, Hey, do you guys know anybody? Uh, do you have any friends in bands that are looking for something? You know, do you know of anybody that are doing things or just kind of like, you know, see bands that they're on uh sharing bills with and then check out bands see if anybody looks like something that might be a good fit or something i dig and just you know reach out to them um that is you know kind of a crapshoot um bands i mean i've over the past couple years i've probably reached out to hundreds of bands and 15 percent of them have responded in any way you know so it's like it's definitely uh it's definitely tricky just to even like 
get a conversation going, but that's kind of the the move that I've been doing lately is just, you know, find a, a band that has any kind of connect that I can make a connection with as far as like, oh yeah, I mixed a record for this, these guys, or, you know, yeah, I know the guitar player and the band that you guys just toured with or whatever, and just try to like have some kind of starter and then see if I can get a conversation going. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, then that's something that a lot of people don't like a lot of people just rely on that word of mouth and yeah, you, you, you don't have word of mouth until you have enough, enough clients to create that snowball. And, you know, obviously like in your situation, you've been doing it for years. So, you know, that word of mouth was building cause you had worked with so many artists. So that, that definitely helps, but you, you do need those different streams. And I think that like the, the outreach side of it is so important. And I, th- I think, you know, it, it's great to hear you say like 15% of people that you reach out to got back to you. Yeah. It's really small. Cause people, but people do need to know that. Right. It's like, I think a lot of people tend to give up and it's like, they reach out to five, 10 bands and nobody gets back to them. And they're like, Oh, this system doesn't work. So I'm not going to do this like cold outreach or, or, you know, try to network. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a numbers game. So to, to hear, to hear how, how that, uh, what those analytics are is really important. And, you know, yeah. And I, I definitely relied on the word of mouth thing for a long time where like, that was, that was it. But the only thing that ever generated was not, I mean, not that it's a bad thing, but the only thing that ever generated was just more local bands. And I, I have done a lot of work with a lot of incredible local bands and I love it. The only thing that I, I, um, find is that, um, not all, but a fair amount just, uh, don't have kind of the follow through to like push a record once it's like, we spent all this time making a record and it's like, we put, you know, a lot of work into it and we like the band writes the songs. And I know that by the time the record's done, they're kind of sick of that whole thing because they've been, for especially for a band that's like their first record, they've been sitting on these songs for years sometimes. And it's like, we're ready to be done with that and do something else. But it's like the follow through is not there. So that um, doesn't really get them anywhere. But also then nobody hears the record that I just did. And it, it it's kind of tough to for that to be like a calling card of something, you know? So just relying on word of mouth kind of just kept, kept things at sort, like it felt like a plateau, you know, where it was like, it was great. And I loved a lot of those bands, but it was just like, you know, a couple years of working with, you know, the best local bands. For sure. Um, which was, again, great. And I, I love them. But I, I want a little bit more out of my career. So it had to be a thing where it's like, all right, well, I have, to, I have to actively do something to make the next step happen. I can't just like sit and rest if I want to, you know, let like get to the place I want to get to. Gotcha. Yeah, it makes sense. And there's a couple of things to take from that. One is the idea of, you know, bands... And, and how they actually promote the album, you know, because like, like you said, so many people have just been sitting on these songs, they're either tired of them, or they're just really excited just to hear a recording of them. And there's, there's that part of it, too. But then there's the whole other side of um, the, the, like, like what you said, you were working with so many local bands, and then trying to get to that next level. So I'd love to kind of talk about both of those things there. So as far as, um, you know, working with these bands that rec- spend all the time recording, and then they never do anything with that, like, what are some of the tips that you would give to people as far as actually getting the music out there? Because it's beneficial to both parties, right? Like to the band, obviously they want to promote their music and to the engineer, like the engineer should, I don't think engineers should just be sitting around like waiting for the next record to come through. I think it's really important for, for engineers to like participate and try to help people promote it because it's in everyone's interest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing that I've, I try to do for bands is just like, like be a, a resource as much as possible um, on things that I can help with and if i don't i try to connect them to people who can um so like 
over the past couple of years, a big thing that people have asked me is like Spotify playlists. How do I get on Spotify playlists? How do I, you know, like get in front of more people? And that's not a thing that, I mean, I think that's like a moving target anyway. That just changes all the time. But um, it's never been a thing that I've understood, but I, I can put them in touch with people like who might have a better idea of how to get, you know, in front of the curated playlist or whatever that is. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I try to like even have this this conversation with bands where it's like, I know, I know that you guys are not like, as stoked on on these songs anymore but like try to you know not listen to the record for a few weeks and then get excited about it again and don't just you know be pumped for the release show where your friends are going to come out and see your your thing and that be it because that's that's what it seems like it is that people are they're okay cool our record's coming out we're going to have this release show and then you just never hear about their record ever again you know, or like two weeks beforehand, you get a little bit of a buzz going and then it's like our record came out. Thanks for coming out, everybody. We're going to do something else now. You know, <laughs> it's just like there's like that's the part where you start, you know, <laughs> and then most that's the that's the spot where most bands finish. Um, so I, I will, you know, I'll I'll um, I'll tell bands that thing and I'll try to like get that, you know, sort of mindset in them. And they think, hey, yeah, I know this is going to be the tough part for you guys, but you got to work harder now or if i can find like resources like i found like um release checklists online and like try to forward those to people and just be like are, are, are you doing these things beforehand to like have some kind of success just to like because that way if if they can get a little bit of that that success buzz they might be more inclined to continue pushing it you know instead of just like we're going to write some more songs and do another record and then we're going to do this again of course yeah i love that idea man and it's so true it's like you kind of have to have those conversations with bands like before they enter the studio, like what's, what's your promotion plan. And that's definitely something that I've started doing a lot more as well. And you know, it's, it's amazing to hear how many people are like, Oh, well, I guess, yeah, I don't know yet. Like, we'll maybe make some videos or something. And it's like, you need to think about that now because like the budget that you're creating for yourself now is also going to be tied to this as this promotion side of it too. Right. So, you know, think about like, how are you going to do this? Why, like, what do you need to do? And like, is there anything that we should be doing in the studio to prepare for these next steps? Like, you know, yeah. I love when a band will be like, Hey, um, do you have any time? Like, uh, like the first week of August. Cause we want to, we want to put out a single like this, the third week of August. I'm like, give yourself just a little bit of time. Like, I know that you're excited to put it out, but like right now, nobody's clamoring for this. So get, get to the point where some people are anticipating it, you know, like, Give yourself three weeks before releasing a song to tell people that you're releasing a song. You're not Beyonce. You're not going to drop a record and have it blow up. Like you got to let people know it's coming. You know? Yeah, I think I think we all have this like tendency to think that people are paying way more attention than they actually are, and and because of that, it works to everyone's detriment when they're not realizing that like yeah, nobody is actually watching. Nobody's nobody's waiting for your music. You have to you have to create that hype and like there is there's a promotion side to it. Yeah. You got to grab people by the face and say, "Hey, I'm putting out a record. Hey, I'm putting out a song." Like you got, and you got to do it all the time, and it sucks. And I like, I know that like that's a thing, but that's like the attention span. But you really got to like just get in people's face about it, and make sure they know. Yeah, yeah, I, I love whenever I work with a band. It's like do a full length album. And it's like, cool. What are you going to do with this now? And it's like, oh, we've got a release date like three weeks from now. We're going to drop the whole record. And it's like, what? Like you're sitting on gold, like gold right now. You just like leak this out. Like do something with it other than just put it out. You guys, you have content. You have drippable content for a year right now if you want yeah. it, you know? Yeah, but no. And I know, and I like, I get that. Like people did not, you know, sign up, like grab a guitar so they could like try to influence an algorithm to get in front of people. Like I know that that's not a thing that they did, but it's like, it's part of the deal. If if you want to be kind of successful in this, you got to like figure out how to get in front of, at the minimum, just like 
at least like tease it out, like have kind of regular intervals of like, hey, we're doing this thing. Hey, we're doing this thing. Hey, we put out a record. Don't have you listened to our record yet? Or you check out, you know, we got added to the Spotify playlist. Good. Like just like I know it sucks, but like you gotta do that kind of stuff. Yeah, totally. I was working with an artist recently and we were having that conversation of like, so what are you gonna do with this? And he's like, you know, I'll just record all these songs and then, you know, find find a label and a manager. And I was like, what just what do you have to offer them right now? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. And he's like, well, I, music. I, I, <laughs> I, I love that mindset of like, there was a, a comedians in cars getting coffee, uh, that Jerry Seinfeld thing. And it was Alec Baldwin. And he was talking about that. And he said, like, I feel like young people in, in entertainment are just like literally sitting on their couch, just waiting for the knock at the door. And it's like, hey, we're here from the entertainment industry. You're coming with us. You're famous now. It's just like, that's not how it works. There's no, no one's going to just like come and grab you. You got to like, you know, you got to get in front of people's face, but I, yeah, I love that. I'm just gonna find a label. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had a, um, a, a client one time and she was young and like, didn't really get it. So, the, but her goal was to, we're going to record a single. And then with all the money she made from the single, she was going to record the record. And I was like, oh, oh dear. I guess we're not recording a <laughs> record. <laughs> yeah. I guess, I guess we're doing a single. Yeah. So. So true. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, I love the fact that, you know, I think anyone who's listening to this, whether you, whether they're a musician or an engineer, it's like there's something to take from this. Like you have to, you know, our job is it goes much be it goes far beyond just the recording side of it, and you know, just putting your music out there. And and in a lot of ways, we are we're in the entertainment industry. We're not in the music industry anymore. And with so many avenues online, you know, music is just becoming part of this much bigger picture. And so, you know, the better, the more, the more people can realize that and whether if you're an engineer it's like helping the artists that you're working with realize that as well and helping them with the promotion like it's just adding so much more value and i think that absolutely you know, to what you said earlier about like you were working with all these local artists that weren't really doing anything with that you know we we all want to get to that next level and you talked about the idea of getting to those next tier artists and kind of escaping that local scene uh, local band scene. So, you know, as far as getting those next tier artists, like what steps were you taking to, to get those as opposed to just like, you know, you said, you said you had that word of mouth snowball that was kind of creating this local buzz. So how do you get to that next level? Well, it, I mean, I'm still, I'm still figuring out and like all this stuff that I'm talking about, like I'm, I'm not great at, you know, like advertising myself and all that kind of stuff. Um, we all just figured out as we go. Yeah. Right. And it like, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And I, you know, I'll, sometimes I'll email five bands and get discouraged that no one gets back. And I'm like, all right, I'm not going to do this today. Um, but, uh, what happened was there was a, a local band called Welshly Arms. Um, and they were one of the bands that was like, they're, they're just, they're going to do it no matter what happens. They're driven. They are great songwriters. They're great musicians. Um, and I met those guys through, um, a gig with American Greetings, the card company. Um, uh, two of the guys worked there uh, making uh, music jingles and greeting cards and stuff like that. And I had done some work with them uh, just making greeting cards. And we kind of became friends and they started talking about making a record. And I was like, I would love to be involved in any way you guys would like to have me. You know, whatever that looks like. Um, they're incredible uh, producers, engineers, mixers on their own right. Um, but I was just like, if you guys need an extra set of hands, whatever, whatever you need, I would love to be involved. Um, they're like, great. So they asked me to engineer their self-titled record, um, which after it came out, ended up getting um, picked up by Universal in Germany. And I uh, started touring Europe. They did like, they just, they had all the, like, they just did it, you know? Um, 
After that, they ended up cutting uh, another single by themselves, which became this massive, massive hit. I mean, it's got 150 million streams on Spotify. For a local band, it's it's nuts. I don't even think of them as a local band anymore. They're just, they're something else. Um, but because I, I worked with that band and kind of had this this sort of like name recognition, I was able to sort to use that and just be like, hey, um, you know, as a cold outreach, I'd, you know, it would be like uh, Jim Stewart and then in parentheses, a couple of bands and they were always the first band. So they were a, a name that people might recognize, especially like in, uh, you know, kind of a more regional area, but then also getting into like a national type thing um, where they would have some name recognition and people like would at least open the email. So that, that worked for a little bit and started getting some of the stuff. And then I had a guy who was helping me um, like he, his, his uh, deal was to just try to find me young, cool bands that were coming up. Um, and he started just like, cold calling like crazy he had he made lists he would go through spotify and just make lists of hundreds of bands and like just you know get out there and, and start saying hey here's this dude in cleveland would you have any interest in working with him it was just like that kind of thing and he um found this band called the happy fits and just cold called them and they responded positively and decided to set up a skype call and we we did a quick call and it was the three guys in the band and we just kind of you know, shot the shit for a little bit and talked. And then um, they're like, cool, man, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. We'll see what happens. And then I didn't hear anything for like a year and a half, two years, something like that. I thought it was like nothing. We, I think we sent a couple follow-up emails, but that was it, nothing. And then all of a sudden I get an email from their producer saying, hey man, the record's going to be done at the end of February. We'll start sending you files and we can't wait for to hear the mixes. It was just like out of nowhere. Like I'm getting a record from this band. It was amazing. And, um, it was just like this really cool indie indie rock record that I totally, totally fell in love with all the songs and just like their whole vibe. They're like the nicest guys. And what, like they just started to blow up. They're, they started touring and doing more and more stuff. And then like during COVID, they, would, uh, they, they took advantage of it like crazy where they would do these like live streams. Every week they would have a live stream and people would get like more and more people would tune in and they just kept people engaged and have been growing and growing and growing. And um since then, I've, I've I mixed their first or their second record, and then I mixed a handful of singles, and then I just mixed their third record, which is coming out uh, three weeks from our recording this, and that has been another one of those things where it's like I can use you know that name recognition now that they're escalating and. Um, it's turning into finding bands who are friends with those guys or their producer is now sending me some stuff because he dug what I did on the record. So like getting contacts with um, people who are making records, people who are adjacent to the bands that I'm making records with, it's the same kind of thing. It's word of mouth. It's just over there. You know, it's in a different city that I'm getting word of mouth or I've got another, you know, there's another producer in Nashville who's been sending me some stuff that's a little bit different. It's more like, you know, country rock leaning and I can, he's digging that stuff. So now like people who he's working with are coming my way. It's just, it's again, it's the same kind of thing. It's just making connections with people in different areas and trying to, you know, do good work for people who are coming up. I love that, man. That's great. And yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting to hear like that story of the happy fits and like how you know, they just took advantage of COVID and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about or just about like how bands that are actually doing stuff to promote or are, are getting success out of it and seeing seeing the, their their fan base grow. And it, you know, kind of ties into that whole point altogether. So that's awesome. Yeah, and I, I know exactly the date that their record is coming out because I see it every day because they're they're promoting it, you know. Like I go on, I go on Instagram and they pop up and they've got a story about, have you pre-saved our record yet? And they, they got a funny little video or a clip or, you know, like something that's reminding you that the record's coming. 
and it's For just sure. like there's a buzz about it and there's you know it's the reason that they're coming up on two million monthly spotify listeners or whatever it's just like because they're keeping people engaged and letting like you know they're always top of mind for a lot of people and then they just kill it when you find like when you finally discover them you know it's so funny how just like a small little detail like hey this is the date our record's coming out and just like making people know about that can make a difference you know and like one, one of my business coaches he always talks about how like the the longer the runway the bigger the launch kind of thing and you know and, and it's interesting watching him with like his online courses because he he like a year out will give you the date of his next opening for his program you know and and it's like he already has that scheduled and every video he's in he talks about it and like gives you the date for a whole year you know and it's like you can't forget it and then when it comes out you're just like oh i got i gotta jump on this it's today you know so it's it's like bands don't do that it's always like hey we're releasing a record this week or we've got a show coming up you know they half the time it's like they don't even mention that the, it's a cd release show it's just like yeah we got a show and the, the record's coming out that day you know <laughs> yeah or there's a you go you go through you know a month and a half ago they mentioned they were dropping a single on this date and all of a sudden it's here and it's just like Oh, great. <laughs> you guys didn't say anything else. Cool. Yeah, love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of the Happy Fits, they're, they're definitely a band that when I listen to their their records, like they sound super cool. They've got a really cool vibe to them. And uh, definitely like for, for people that don't know them, they're a band that has like an indie sound that uses cello instead of uh, like an electric bass. And I just thought that was a really cool way of um, just giving the, the songs like a, a unique vibe to them. So... I'd love to talk a little bit about mixing them and, and some of the, the challenges of mixing cello and, and uh, working with that instead of your traditional rock band. Um, so what are, what are some of your tips when it comes to mixing cello for rock music? Well, they're, they're funny. I mean, they're incredible with how they utilize that cello. Um, their producer, uh, his name's Ayad, um, he is unbelievable with making super, super dense uh, productions that incorporate this I mean, cello is an incredible instrument, and it is super broad. It gets really, really low. It gets really screechy high. It can cover a wide frequency range. Um, and they, in some of their songs, they do utilize it as a cello. Or I'm sorry, as a bass, where it'll be the you know, like he'll he'll play pits, and it'll be like thumpy low end, or he'll bow some stuff for some more like legato type things where it'll be the thing that's holding down the low end. But also, they on like rockers, they will have a bass and then also a cello. Um, sometimes doing the same thing. Sometimes the like a bass is doing a bass guitar part, and the cello is doing like a, a just super distorted, grindy lead part. Over uh, they have a single out right now um, called "Do Your Worst," and there's a um, this instrumental break where everybody thinks it's a, a crazy synth lead, and it's cello just like mangled through stuff. Um, so it's it's definitely a challenge on a like they 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 capture it well and they like, you know, they arrange things really well so that it fits a spot, but it's definitely trying to make it, um, you know, have a presence because it's an important thing, but also not feel out of place in a rock band. For um, sure. Yeah. And again, a huge part of that is them in the, the, the songwriting production and, you know, cat tracking side of things, getting it to be, in a spot that is already usable and I'm not having to try to shoehorn it in, you know? Of course. So yeah, you think it really comes down to like the arrangement more than anything to, to make it fit. That's a big thing. And then, um, uh, we will go back and forth and like, uh, there's a ton of automation on their stuff. A ton. I mean, every, every element is getting automated for something. Everything's getting volume automated. Some things are getting, uh, EQ automation where, 
you know, um, there's a song on the new record where it starts with um, like Pitts cello and then bass enters later. So when the the bass isn't in, the cello is taking up the low end. So the low end is you know bigger there, and then it gets uh, smushed down a little bit. You know, the high pass comes up during the verses or when the bass is actually in. So there's a lot of just like um, handoffs, you know, trying to like find the spot where something is going to go away, where the cello can poke its head up, or you know, things are going to be kind of coming in and out like that. So it's it's definitely a lot of back and forth. Um, it helps that they, again, do the arrangement very well and, like, things um, are allowed to, like, grow and, and shrink and kind of, you know, the choruses get big and wide and then the verse can come back down. So that it, it allows for things to to poke up real quick and, like, you know, raise their hand and then disappear. And you you hear it when it happens and then it's it's gone, but it doesn't feel like it's... You know, you still kind of like perceive it sort of thing. So there's a lot of that stuff. I feel like um, a lot of distortion on cello uh, to kind of help it, um, you know, cut through the sometimes aggressive distorted guitar, sometimes super distorted bass, sometimes super distorted pads and, you know, tons of vocals. So yeah, there's there's a lot going on in some of these things, but um, just trying to like weave it in and out is is, you know, kind of the move. And I mean, sometimes Ayad and I will go back fo- back and forth, you know, a handful of times until it's really feeling like it is, and then he'll get stuff from the band, and we'll just do more revisions. But um, it's just trying to trying to find a spot, and then if that spot moves somewhere in the song, trying to find it, you know, just <laughs> keep trying to find where it lives during different sections. Totally. Well, yeah, that that was one of the things I was curious about because obviously, you know, cello is a bass instrument, but it it does have a different timbre a different character than an electric guitar or electric bass and you know as far as solidifying that big balanced low end you know there it really does depend on the playing and and what's you know all the all of that kind of stuff but like did you do you feel like you a lot of people talk about like when it comes to kick and bass relationships like there's either there's always one that's lower in the frequency spectrum than the other so did you feel like you were leaning a lot more on like the kick to occupy those kind of sub e frequency ranges yeah, and I tend to do. I think that's kind of where I live in like rock stuff. Um, I, I have the the kick below the bass, and I'll I'll, I'll high pass the bass up to eighty, maybe you know. Um, and so I the kick is usually sixty for me, depending on you know where it's where it's tuned and stuff like that. But around there, the bass lives above that, and then the cello would get you know. Uh, a little bit like taken out a little bit higher than that just to kind of keep those three things from fighting each other and having some space um again the arrangement makes a huge difference in this stuff and how stuff is played and um you know where uh like um where he's picking a chord or or a part but yeah i just try i try to if the bass isn't there the cello can breathe a little bit more but as the bass comes in the cello's got to get out of the way and let that low end be there gotcha and and was it was the idea to kind of make the bass and cello typically kind of be treated as one or sometimes yeah and uh, sometimes it's both in the same song where there is a cello kind of you know um, doing the same thing as the bass line where the uh, sometimes there's sub bass on like a synth I mean there's all kinds of stuff they they really they really got broad on this record there's stuff that's like really organic there's stuff that's really like poppy and like you know synthy based um, but yeah sometimes there'll be a layer of of uh, you know, bass cello that's doing the same thing as the bass line, uh, but maybe with more pizzicato so you can feel the strings more while the electric bass is just kind of thumping along. And then there's a, mel- a melodic uh, or a lead cello happening somewhere else. Sometimes those things are all kind of happening in the same song, and it's just a matter of, you know, finding the space 
So you talked about the idea of adding distortion and some effects to the cello as well. And in a lot of ways, cello is typically seen as this kind of classical instrument. And, you know, a lot of people treat it that way. But in, in a rock setting, I mean, you can definitely have a little bit more fun with it. And you were talking about adding the distortion and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Was that were the decisions to have distortion on the cello? Were those like mixed decisions or were they production decisions that were kind of done ahead of time? Sometimes both. Um, I had would send me uh, sessions, which is where he left off. Um, so I would have a lot of his stuff that they had been listening to as they went. And um, I would keep or remake or discard whatever kind of felt necessary. Sometimes there was like reverbs that just like, you know, I'm just, he's just throwing a reverb on. And he would even say like, he's not precious about anything. Occasionally he'd be like, hey, uh, we really dug the backing vocal reverb that we had. Maybe you could just use the same thing or stuff like that. Um, but a lot of times, you know, the cello would come in with something uh especially for the more aggressive songs they would they would be listening to it like that and i would either you know take that refine it or get something else that i thought might work better um a lot of things uh, he was using that um that rc20 the retro color plugin on a bunch of stuff on this record that that made its way into a, a bunch of things um so that has like a pretty like ratty transistory sort of distortion in it if you want so that that might have been in on a couple things i know it came on stuff i can't remember if i always kept it or not um but like uh saturn uh fab filter saturn would would be the thing a lot because i could keep the the i could keep the distortion where i wanted it which was usually in the upper register stuff to cut through and not distort the low end which is maybe getting distorted elsewhere in the bass or something like that you know um so i could keep the low end clean and controlled and not have it be all crapped out and keep the articulate part that I wanted to cut through just blown up with Saturn. Totally. Do you find that distortion is something that you typically like having on bass instruments? Uh, yeah, at least some some kind of, you know, harmonic something. Um, I, yeah, Saturn has found its way on almost every single kick drum I've mixed in the past couple years. Um, basically, the same deal, just fully distorting the top end. Like, everything above 1K is just all the way up, and then pull the the actual level of that band down a little bit so frequency like eq wise it feels it doesn't feel brighter but it just kind of like it gets smushed a little bit and kind of like lets it speak a little bit more but it also like it like it just it kind of like lengthens the transient if that makes sense you know Hmm. it's like what tape does it kind of just like smushes out that initial thing so it's not so ticky and it kind of lets it have a little bit more length but it doesn't feel like distorted if that makes sense absolutely um but yeah on a bass guitar i'll definitely like i I usually do the thing you know split them into like a low and high on two different faders same even if it's the same if it's just a if it's just a di i'll copy that onto two faders and have one with the top end rolled off and one with the bottom end rolled off and then the 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 high one that doesn't have any low end will get pretty distorted and then same thing where the low end of the bass is nice and clean and pure and I can control it as needed. And then the top end has the, the distortion for the finger noise and articulation and stuff like that. So I can, I can balance how much of that I want to hear in the mix on a fader instead of going through and EQing the bass more or less, you know? Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think a lot of people do that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right. Definitely like having that distortion does give you that extra length and that, that, that fullness and the harmonic content just really does allow it to cut through on smaller speakers and that kind of thing. So you know, it's definitely beneficial to have. Um, speaking of big and length, that sounds like, sounds like the setup to a dirty joke. <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> um, one of the things that one of the things that struck me when I was listening to um, the portfolio that you have on your website is your snare tones. And 
as a drummer, I despise mixing snare, and I know a lot of my <laughs> students hate snare as well. Um, but I found that like your snare drums always have this really big full tone to them, and or at least at least you know from the demos you had on your website there, you, like you had a lot of really cool ones that just like just felt big and full, and you know like you said like they don't have like those that ticky kind of sound, you know it, it adds more sustain and, and size to them. So what are some of your best tips for achieving those big fat snare drum sounds? Um, I mean, good drummer. A, you know, that's, that's the number one, like good musician makes like, just cancels out any, um, deficiency anywhere else. You know, a good drummer on a good drum. It's just, the order is musician, instrument, and then anything else I would do of importance. You know, it's just like, if you can get a good drummer on a good snare, great. If you don't have that option, um, I'm not ashamed of putting samples in. Uh, I have no, like, I won't, I won't replace almost ever. Uh, unless there's something weird going on, but I, I always try to augment. So picking a sample that, um, you know, just uh, like complements the recording, recorded snare. Um, if, I, if I'm if i recording a project, I try to get samples at the end. I'll just have the drummer give me like a, a like too soft, too medium, too hard, and I'll make a trigger, you know, uh, file. So that way, at least it's like, they blend way better because it's the recorded snare, but you can mangle it and compress it and do whatever you want to it. So I'm not, yeah, I'm not opposed to sampling stuff if, if it needs it. Um, and then I also like to do uh, kick and snare room samples. So I have a dedicated track of just uh, a kick room sound and a snare room sound. Um, and that's just, that's like, you know, the Queens of the Stone Age thing when they recorded no cymbals. It's like you get a perfectly clean room kick that you can compress and distort and get all the length out of and get all the, you know, get this cool kind of like air around a kick drum without having to deal with, you know, cutting out the cymbal frequency or like, he you know, in the verse it feels great because he's really quiet on the hi-hat and then he bashes into the chorus and like all that awesome thing that you had goes away. So I, I really love having a dedicated kick and snare room sample. And um, I, for a long time, I wasn't even doing any reverbs. It was just like these room tones, you know, um, to make the drums feel in a space and not super fake if you can you know you can really get away with a lot of those triggers without before it sounds artificial as long as you don't like you know have it just like machine gun snare onto a roll or something like that of course yeah no i love that idea and it's that's a perfect way of describing why you would use a kick and kick and bass room sample um because yeah like one of my favorite ways to record drums is to do this drums and cymbals separate, but it's so hard to find a drummer who can actually perform it that way uh, or who's consistent enough to do it that way. So um, definitely that, that's a great explanation for, for how and where you would use those samples. Um, and, and I think it's cool. Like you said, like you can, you can really compress the crap out of them. You could, you know, distort them. You can mangle them however you want to get that exercise off of your, your instruments. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, as much as we've listened to recorded drums for the past, however many years, um, it is still weird to stick a microphone inside of a bass drum or, you know, three inches, an inch and a half, whatever, from a snare drum. That's not how we listen to drums. You know, you're not putting your ear next to a snare and going, oh man, this drum set kit sounds great. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's the combination of those things, but then also the air around them that makes it feel like a drum kit. So kind of, you know, finagling it, like just getting cheater tracks of that sort of vibe of air has been like really helpful for getting like big, aggressive rock drums. Cause even like, you know, I've done some like sort of jazzier stuff where like there's a side stick and I want to put it into, you know, an actual room or an actual chamber or something like that. So I'll just trigger a room sound of that. And it sounds, you know, it automatically kind of just like sets things back into a space a little bit as opposed to just being hyper in your face. Yeah, absolutely. Man, I love that. And yeah, I definitely, I mean, I, I find myself, I don't typically 
use like a, a specific room sample with my snares, but I've always enjoyed using snare samples that have a roominess to them. Right. Yeah, right. Sure. Um, but, but I see, but I definitely see the benefit to having the room sample and definitely something I'm going to try out uh, in my next mix just to, just have fun with it and see, see what you can do with yeah. it. But, uh, and I mean, cool. name drop, uh, the Blackbird, uh, slate pack has a sample of, uh, studio D's chamber as well. Yep. So if you want to get like a real stupid long, you know, I mean, it's like a three second or maybe more <laughs> reverb, but it's just like, I always kind of tuck it in a little bit and it just kind of adds again, a little bit more of that sort of, you know, big old room length. Do you, do you find yourself like gating it or shortening it up somehow? Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes I'll put a transient designer on it, uh, to just like, you know, pull the length down a little bit. Um, I know you can do that in trigger. You can like pull the decay down. Um, but yeah, sometimes I just let it full open and just like barely tuck it in and it kind of just adds enough of that sort of like explosive kind of, you know, like that snare in a room sound. Yeah. That was very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I love that. I love, I mean, I'm a drummer, so I'm, I'm slightly biased and, and I just yeah, love sure. hearing out about mixing drums, but I, I love hearing people's approaches for that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, man, Jim, I don't want to take up too much more of your time and I know you got a session you got to go to soon. So, um, probably a good spot to start wrapping up. If people want to learn more about you and learn more about the projects you're working on or even potentially work with you, what's the best place for them to do that? Sure. Uh, my website, it's just uh, jimstewartmixing.com. Um, all the socials are at jimstewartrec, R-E-C. So uh, I, I really only, I don't do much on anything but Instagram um, and they'll share the other stuff. But um, yeah, that's really it. Uh, website and, you know, social media stuff. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely have some uh, some of those links in the show notes as well. Awesome. Right on, man. So that was my interview with Jim Stewart, and I found his story very fascinating. And I thought it was so crazy to hear his perseverance and how he had gone through so many ups and downs as he was navigating and trying to get into to running his studio business and how he, you know, worked for so many places that shut down, but yet he kept going and how he has just kept pursuing it. And I thought it was really interesting to hear how he managed to, you know, kind of restart, keep his expenses low, operate with just a small bit of equipment, and just from there, let the snowball grow and start growing his reputation in his local scene and just letting that snowball build and build and build to the point where now he has this much bigger space and he's got a really cool setup that he's that he's definitely loving and things seem to be going really, really well with him. So, you know, I just think that sometimes this industry can be very tough and because of that, a lot of people tend to give up. But when you're really passionate about it, you find ways to make it work. And, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of scaling back and that's all you need to do. So it was really interesting to hear, you know, his perspective on things. And I love just getting into that conversation about, you know, if you build it, they will come and how that's just such a lie. And so many studios fail because of that mentality. So, yeah, I just thought he he offered some really cool insights into the process of you know, building a studio and learning lessons from some of these failed studios in the past. And also it was great to hear about some of his mixing tricks. And I in particular loved how he was talking about using room samples and why he does that. And definitely it's something that has got my brain going and I'm certainly going to try it in my next mix and you should definitely do it as well. So yeah, I hope that you found a lot of great value out of that. I know I certainly did. And if you did, definitely make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live. And make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com if you're looking for tips on how to create pro-sounding recordings from your home studio. And while you're there, definitely check out my book. It's called The Mixing Mindset. That is a book where I break down the process of mixing step-by-step, showing you what to listen for, what tools to be using, how to dial in your settings. That way, throughout the entire process, you can have that confidence and eliminate that guesswork from everything because you know 
you want to be making music. You don't want to be futzing around trying to, you know, figure out what sounds good and trying to go through plugin presets. You want to know how to get the sound that you hear in your head to come out of your speakers. And that's what this book is going to show you. And also on the website, we've got other courses and coaching programs and that kind of stuff. So if you're interested in that, definitely make sure to check those out on the website as well. So once again, that's available at masteryourmix.com. So with that said, that is it for this episode. We've reached the end. Thanks so much for sticking around to the end. And I look forward to chatting with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.